book I read recently is by Donald Miller. It's called uh, Hero on a Mission. And in this book, he talks about the importance of guides in each of our life. Uh, that every one of us needs to flourish guides, people that know us, that care about us, that help us make decisions, mentors, you might think of it that way, folks that help you navigate maybe your faith, uh, maybe your relationships, maybe uh, your work, but mentors, guides to really kind of help steer the path in your life. I bet if I asked you, uh, you have people, individuals, names of people who have been a guide in your journey. People who have helped to shape you and help you frame decisions to make. That your life is better off because you let them have access uh, into your journey versus just standing alone. Uh, I've shared with you that one of the guides for me was a seminary professor named Daryl Guter. Uh, as most of you know, I uh, had a different path to seminary. Uh, I didn't go to church uh, very much when I was young and through college, but came to faith while living in Japan for two years uh, in a little house church run by two Norwegian missionaries. Um, and after living there and after coming to faith in this Japanese house church, I um, decided I wanted to study faith more. You've heard this. And, uh, and so I decided to go to seminary, not to be a pastor, but I just wanted to intellectually understand this faith more. So I showed up at the one seminary I knew existed in Atlanta, Georgia, where I had grown up, Columbia Theological Seminary. And as I've shared with you before, it was a culture shock like I had never, ever experienced before in my life. Going from a non church-going background to a Japanese house church where you come to faith to a, an American mainline denominational seminary was like just a complete paradigm shift for me that I was not, I didn't understand the language people were using, I didn't understand the background people had, I didn't understand the assumptions people were making. I'm not saying that that means I was better than, it was just this completely foreign experience. And I was ready to drop out uh, until I heard Daryl Guter give a lecture. It was about a month in, and I went and met with him. It was the first thing I had connected with, and I went and met with him and sort of poured out my story to him and my confusion to him and, and my kind of disorientation to him. And, and I've shared this with you before. He, he invited me to come to his house the next morning for breakfast. And that began a process where every Wednesday morning, I had my first guide as a Christian, my first mentor. I would walk from my dorm room uh, to his house. He and Judy, his wife, would be there. He would have breakfast for me. The two of us would have breakfast together. We talked about life. We talked about marriage. We talked about ministry. And he just shaped and formed so much of what I am today, including the fact I'm a pastor. I was ready to drop out. Um, I was thinking, though, this week, what you haven't heard before is the first meeting I ever had with him. Uh, again, I'm in this in, in, uh, I was in this place of kind of anger and frustration and confusion and, and disorientation. And uh, I go to his house and we talk. And he was just great. He was like assuring me. He's like, God's a part of your story. God's a part of decisions. Uh, you know, let's figure this out. But God hasn't abandoned you. And, and you didn't miss something. And, and it, and it kind of gave me a sense of confidence. But at the end of the time, he said something that I now understand what it means. But at the time, I didn't understand it at all. It was sort of the Christianese, right? He goes, let's end in prayer. And he goes, and when we pray, why don't you start and I'll finish? Now, many of you have prayed that way with people before. You start and you pray out loud and when you finish, someone else prays. I had never had anyone say that to me before. I didn't understand what it meant, but I defaulted. Rather than just admitting I didn't know what it meant, for two years I had lived in rural Japan 
and didn't speak a whole lot of Japanese, which is a different story altogether. But I was completely used to faking like I understood what people were saying because I would, got tired of going like, I don't understand, I don't understand. And then they'd explain it to me and I still don't understand. So in Japan, I would just go, okay. And usually I could fake it and figure it out what was going on in a situation. So because I'd done that for so long, when he said, you start and I'll finish, I defaulted and said, okay, having no idea what that meant. And so he bowed his head and I bowed my head and sat there for about 10 seconds with the uncomfortable feeling I was supposed to be doing something. And so then I peeked, which I know you've done when praying before at times as well. I know you have, it wasn't just me, but I had my head down and I sort of opened my eye like this and he's looking at me. And he said, Thomas, what I mean by that is you start praying out loud and when you finish, I'll then pray out loud and conclude the prayer. You start and I finish. I'm like, got it, totally. He said, are you ready? Let's pray. Now the other part that was hard was I had to that point never prayed out loud with another person except for my wife. And I gotta tell you, I don't know why I did this. To this day, I cannot explain what I did to you. Some of you could do some sort of psychological study on me of what happened, but I started praying like I was reading from the King James Bible. <laughs> So I was sitting there going like, oh Lord, thy will and thine might is present in all the world. Yea, though I walk through this place. And in my head at the moment, I'm going like, what are you doing? And yet I was like, I don't know if I was trying to sound biblical or like, you know, I, I don't know what I was doing. And I peeked again and he was staring at me again. And he said, Thomas, have you, ever, like, have you ever prayed before? And I said, no. Should I drop out of seminary now? Like, does it disqualify everything you've said about how God's a part of my story and all this? And he said, here's how you think about prayer. Don't act like you're talking to me. Don't worry about me being, and don't feel like you've got to say something to God who's other and often. God's right here in the room with us. God's been here the entire time. Just acknowledge God's presence and talk to him like you've been talking to him and, and try to listen like we've been listening to him. Just, God's right here. Just talk to him. And for the first time in my life, with a person who was not my wife, I prayed. I don't know if it was good or theological or anything, but he didn't shame me. He didn't laugh at me. He didn't tell me I didn't belong. And that was a hugely important part of him validating that God was a part of my life and story. And as we finished, he said, what if you come back next Wednesday morning? For the next two years until he left to go teach at Princeton, I would walk to Dr. Guter's house every Wednesday morning, and he served as a guide, as a mentor in my marriage, in my spiritual life in ministry. He was the first person to talk to me about a, what a missional church was, which we talk about a lot here, uh, a church that's sending people out to be a love letter where you live, work, and play. He influenced so much of my journey. And I want you today to think about who are the guides in your story. Who are the mentors in your life? What were the attributes they have? Because as we look at 2023 beginning, all of us need to be a part of those kinds of relationships. 
But specifically today, what I'm going to invite you to think about is not just who are the guides in your life, as important as that is. But today we're going to be talking about how you are called to be the guide for someone else. This year. And if you don't say yes to that call, your year will be far smaller and far less consequence than what God intends for you. Who are you called to help guide, to love, to care for, to pray for, to mentor? The scripture that's going to guide us is from Acts chapter 8, starting with verse 26. I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that no matter who we are or how we walk in here today, how we gather and worship today, we would experience your gospel, your good news, and it would change us forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So friends, um, this is the fourth week in a five-week series, the second to last week of a series that we've used to begin the year where we are looking at different questions that exist in the Bible. And letting those questions guide us in what the year ahead is to look like. We started in week one by looking at the first question that is asked by God of humanity in the Bible. From Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are hiding and God asked the question, where are you? And we said, what would it mean to start the year not by making resolutions of where you're going to be, but can you name where you are right now? In your life, in your spiritual life, in your marriage, in your friendships, in your uh, emotional life. Can you name where you are rather than jumping to where your plan is to be? And sit in where you are. See it in its honesty. The second week built on that. We said uh, then to look at the question from the New Testament where we hold out the things to God of where we are that are not where we want to be. And all of us have those. And to say and to answer the question which Jesus asked, do you want to be made well? 
What does it mean to join in the process of healing and wholeness, of being transformed into something healthier than where we are now? The third week, last week, we took a question that we said is by itself the most important question you will ever be asked in your entire life. When Jesus looks at the disciples and says to them, who do you say that I am? We ask you to wrestle with that question in your life. Do you say Jesus is a teacher, a holy person, a prophet, or is he the Messiah, the Savior? And what does it mean to answer that question for yourself? This week, the fourth week, we're taking a, a different kind of approach to this. Because there are a lot of questions in the scripture passage that we just read. But the one that we're going to be talking about today and thinking about this week comes in verse 30. And it's where Philip goes to the Ethiopian eunuch and asks him the question, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And the difference this week is that this is not a question we are inviting you to answer so much as to whom are you asking that question? Who have you sent to be a guide to? How is that a template in your life, where you live, where you work, where you play, to be asking this question of another? Do you understand what you're reading? Now, we're gonna approach this in a way that I don't normally do. Uh, There's a classic way of preaching Uh, A three-point sermon. This is kind of what people do. I'd never do this. Because I preach one point. My hope is that on Tuesday morning, you might remember the one point that I was trying to make on Sunday. I do not pretend that you're going to remember three points. But today, the only way that I can figure out how to approach this is to preach a three-point sermon. Because there are three things in here that I think that we have to know. So for the last nine years that I've been at this church, if you're sitting there going, God, I just miss a three-point sermon, today is your day. We are going old school, classic, three-point sermon. So three things that I want you to know about this passage and think about this week. Number one is this. When it comes to the fact that you have been called to be a guide, I want you to understand, number one, you're called. You are called to do it. It is a calling that exists for every Christian in history. The theological term for this is that this is known as our apostolic calling. You are called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. There are two terms in the Bible that Jesus refers to his followers as, his disciples as. The one that we use that's far more common is disciple. He calls them that. And we use that in the church today, right? Uh, Discipleship program. Uh, The word disciple literally means to follow. So when we say that we're disciples of Jesus, forming disciples of Jesus, we're forming followers of Jesus. We encourage one another to follow Jesus, we say here at Covenant, wherever we live, work, and play. But the second term that Jesus uses to describe his followers is one that in the American church we do not use very much. And that is that he refers to his followers as apostles. And to be an apostle literally translates to one who is sent. So we are called to follow Jesus as disciples, but every one of us, he says, is also called as an apostle, meaning we are sent out. Both of those terms are found in our vision statement, right? We encourage one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play, out out there. Where you live, where you work, and where you play, God has a purpose for your life. God is sending you out. 
And the job of this church is to equip you to go do that in a way that is honest and authentic to you. We have missed that in the American church. If you think about how churches classically think of themselves, we don't talk about being missional, sending people. We judge everything being unattractional, meaning can we get people to come to us? That's the point. And so even the metrics that churches use to judge success are judged on how we measure our people coming to us, right? So it's, you know, what's your worship attendance or what's your membership or what's your budget and how much are people giving? But the idea is we measure success by do people come to us? This church is not different from that. In our session packet, and I've said this often, there's a, a graph every month in the session packet of the last 10 years of worship attendance at Covenant broke down by the average per month. So in December of you know, 2013, it was this. December of 2014, it was this. And above the name of the year is the senior pastor that was here at the time. Every month, that's there. And I have been asking to remove that completely. And the reason is, and this is important, it's not because we're declining. Our church is growing. It has been growing. It There's a reason we sent out a video this week asking you to ride the shuttles. We have run out of parking the last couple of weeks. Our children's area is bulging. Our youth there. We're asking this going, hey, we are marking success and we're saying this is the wrong thing to measure. God isn't sitting there going, covenant, in a time of church decline, you guys are growing. Congratulations, you win. That's the point. How many people come to you? The job of the church is to equip you to go out into the world. We're a sending agency. And we don't even know how to measure that because we haven't thought about it for 200 years in the American church. Well, how do you measure that? I don't know. Well, let's just talk about worship attendance again. The beautiful part of a church growing from a missional church perspective is that there are more people to go out and create ripple effects in Austin during the week. That's what's exciting about our growth and our intergenerational growth. And are we forming you for your apostolic calling? I can tell you this. In all the growth that we've had, and now we're growing online as well as in person, we have never once asked the question among our leadership as a church at a session meeting. And for those of you who are on session, for those of you who have been on we have never said, how do we grow? Because it's not the point. We have never once sat in a staff meeting in the nine years I've been here and asked the question, how does covenant grow? Because it's not the point. That's not the goal. That's not the win. But we expect to grow because of what we're doing here is significant. People will want to come be a part of it. People want to invite their friends to be a part of it. But we want to send you out to live a life of difference. You are called. And our job as a church is to form you for that sentness for your apostolic calling, not just your calling as a disciple. You see that? So number one, you're called. Number two of a three-point sermon is this. Not only are you called, but you're qualified. And this is important as well, because when I talk about this idea that you are sent out where you live, work, and play, the thing that I hear a lot, and I get it, is people going, well, I'm, it's not me. I, I, can't, I don't know what to do. I don't, I, don't, I don't have any idea what that would mean. I, I can't go where I live and work and play. I mean, I'm imperfect. I don't know the Bible backwards and forwards. I haven't read all of theology. I don't even know who John Calvin is. Like, how, how am I supposed to answer all these questions? And I, obviously that's somebody else. I have a different set of gifts. My gift's hospitality. <laughs> My gift's working with youth. I don't, I don't do that. 
you're qualified. You're called and you're qualified. What's interesting here and what I love about this passage is Philip's not one of the superstars that we read about over and over again in the New Testament. It's Peter, the rock, who we talked about last week. James and John and these apostles, you know, the ones Jesus calls to him in the Garden of Gethsemane, separates from the others. Philip's never in that crew. Philip's not one of those names. It's like, oh, man, my favorite person in the New Testament, Philip. Man, I resonate with that guy. No one says that. But to this Ethiopian eunuch, the Spirit of God doesn't lead Peter there. Peter's not called to be the one to interact with the eunuch. James and John are not called to be the one. It's Philip that God has uniquely called. He is qualified. When you go out to people who don't know me and will never know who Thomas Daniel is, it's not that God's going, how do we get Thomas in front of them? God wants you to be in front of them, not me. I have a place where I live, where I work, where I play. I try to be a witness there. God's set you aside for this. And if you don't know the whole Bible and don't live a perfect life, congratulations, that's whom God's looking for. What does Philip do here? He doesn't go in with a seven-point treatise of theology or apologetics. He doesn't start with that. He doesn't give him a biblical track going, if you died tonight, you know what's going to happen to you. There's a theological thing that Philip does when he goes up to the carriage. He's led by God, and he goes into that situation looking and listening for what God is already doing in the life of the eunuch. You can do that. Philip doesn't go in with a prearranged speech with all the answers. He goes in and takes the time to say, what's going on here? Because where you live, work, and play, the people you're sent to, God is already a part of their life. Some of the, well, there's a lot of bad theology in the church, but some of the theology that works me up the most, um, because I'm a theological dork, and now I, I used to not know how to pray, and now I can like get into arguing about theology and find it riveting and exciting, um, is called workplace ministry. If any of you have like seen this, it's like, we're going to equip you to go into your office place and to witness to Jesus. And part of what drives me nuts about it is that the guilt they lay on people is, you need, I, I heard someone say this one time, and I struggled not to stand up and say anything. You guys might struggle not to stand up and argue with me on Sundays. Is them going, you need to take Jesus to your office place. No, you don't. God set the planets in motion. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God doesn't need you to take him anywhere. It makes it sound like God's a little kid at the front door going, can I go to work with you today, please? And you're like supposed to pick him up. Okay, you can come to work, but sit in the corner and don't say anything. You know, it's, that's so, don't say that word, don't say that word. Uh, it, it's bad theology. God is already at work in the places of the people where you live, work, and play. The job of an apostle is to go in and to sit there and go, what's God doing? So you know what a guide does like Philip? You ask more questions than you give answers to in the beginning. You care about and get to know somebody's story. You listen more than you talk. And you're listening with a radar of like, man, what is God doing? And in this case, he found out that the Ethiopian eunuch was, uh, had an understanding of Isaiah. 
And so Philip's like, okay, well, I can respond to that. I can like figure out what that means. I can share what God's done in my life. The thing you need to be able to do this week is to go out. What qualifies you is to go out saying, God, I'm going to take this person to coffee. I'm going to take them to lunch. I'm going to stop by and just ask them what's going on. I'm going to listen to their story, listening for where are the fingerprints of God already there? Where's grace already there? Where's love? And how do we start giving language to that? Oh, you might call that fate. Here's what I call that. That's, that's what it is. You're qualified to do it. You can take someone to coffee and ask them questions and listen to their story. You can do that. You are called. You're qualified. And the last point, which i got to finish now, is this. I, just, I believe in this stuff so much. That's how, this is how the world changes. I wish I was a good three-point preacher. I'd have one word for that. Called, qualified, and... But I don't know what it is. But the third thing is, this is how the world changes. What we sometimes don't know as Americans is that one of the countries on the globe that has the longest thriving Christian presence is Ethiopia. Goes all the way back, still a majority Christian nation today. Goes all the way back to when Constantine in the fourth century became a Christian and this became a Christian nation. But even before that in Ethiopia, there are very real signs of vibrant gospel-centered Christianity that is there. Hearing of a God of grace and love who declares your love not because of what you do, but because of what God has done. The gospel has been alive in Ethiopia constantly far more than just about any country on earth. And when you look back at the stories, there are images and stories of even royalty converting to Christianity in the early days. Who is Philip sent to? A member of the royal court of Candace, queen. None of those people in Ethiopia might have known who Philip was in the beginning. And Philip didn't have a strategic plan to evangelize Ethiopia. It didn't start with a steering committee. It started with being faithful to the person that God put in front of him. And over generations, millions of lives have been changed because Philip said yes to seeking to guide an individual in front of him. As I get older, I am more and more of the belief that this is how our world changes, not us sending behind a computer screen forwarding an article telling you who's to blame in the world. That does not change people. To pursue a person, to listen to them, to love them, to pray for them, to guide them. That is how the world changes. Not the big public acts. And not only do we see that with Philip, but we've seen that as a church. One of the coolest things the church has ever done, since that I've been a part of, is in 2020 we took a budget surplus from 2019 and we were able to buy medical debt for people in our community, in the Central Texas area, who were living at or below the poverty line. Many of you know this. We were able to buy up and forgive $10 million of medical debt. And it was an amazing thing to know the lie. I had some of the coolest interactions. I had people contacting us going like, I think your church is being falsely represented. You're like, no, 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 this is like a real thing. And then it was like, well, what do we have to do? Like, do we have to go to church? Do I have to sign a doctrinal statement? Like, do I, I don't, you know. And you're like, no, it's just give it. It's just the debt's gone. As God has forgiven us, it's just it's just free. There's no strings attached to it. But maybe the 
coolest interaction for me personally was to take the article that the statesman wrote about us and to send it to Daryl Guter in Seattle, Washington, who's retired there now, who talked to me from when I didn't know how to pray about how the measure of a church was not how many people were coming, but do your neighbors care that you're there? Who asked me the question and asked us the questions at church when we were here, what does it mean to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin? What does it mean to understand your apostolic calling? Now, I want to be clear, I don't take credit individually for that $10 million medical debt forgiveness. There were a lot of people who made that decision, but I was involved in it. And whatever part I played in it is not because I had some great idea, but because an individual week after week after week kept guiding me and speaking into my life about what the church is meant to be, and I wanted him to know the ripple effects of those breakfasts. That the people, the thousands in Central Texas whose debt was forgiven will never know the name Daryl Guter, but he is a part of their story. Not because he went on a crusade about medical debt, but because he built into the life of a person. You are called You are qualified. And this is how you'll change the world. If you don't know at the end of this year the people that God has placed on your life, then your year will have been too small. Listen for the nudge of the Spirit. And respond. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask for your leading and your guiding as your apostolic people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.